The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's go ahead and uh, turn in our Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The title of my message for you this evening is True Greatness. We're going to look at a truly great man. There's a guy by the name of Leonard Bernstein. He used to be the conductor of the New York Philharmonic Symphony. And he was at one time asked by a reporter, what's the most difficult instrument to play? Bernstein thought about it for a minute. And then he said something that was surprising. He said, second violin. He went on, I can get plenty of first violinists. But to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm, now that's a problem. And yet, if no one plays second, then we have no harmony. (laughs) You know, Bernstein, of course, was talking kind of tongue in cheek. But he makes an interesting point there. We live in a world where it feels like everyone is vying for the same spotlight. Everyone's vying for attention. Everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be famous. It was listed as the number one most important thing in a survey that was given to young people recently. What's the most important thing in life? And they said, we want to be famous. And thanks to social media, that's now a possibility, right? We have the rise of this thing called the influencer. And all you have to do is gather a following, and then you use that platform to pitch your stuff. You make the sale, and supposedly, that's the formula that so many young people seem to be following. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want to be known. I want to be famous. That's what makes a guy like John the Baptist stand out so much. You see, instead of fighting for center stage or clinging to the spotlight like everyone else, John ran from it. He eschewed it. Instead of saying, here I am, look at me, John spent his whole life saying, there's Jesus, look at him. And he would, if there was a spotlight on him, he'd, he'd run from behind it and reposition it so that it focused squarely on Jesus. He constantly deflected all attention away from himself and onto the Lord. See, John, he wasn't the star of the show. He was like the supporting cast. Or better yet, he was the stage crew. He recognized that he wasn't the bridegroom. He was the best man. If we're talking about bands, he wasn't the headliner. He was just the opening act. But the thing about him that made him special and unique is he was perfectly okay with that. And I think there's a lot that we can learn and we can glean from a guy like that. You see, in a world filled with people who are straining to self-promote and assert their own greatness, John teaches us this lesson, that true greatness, listen, true greatness doesn't come from making much of yourself, but from making much of Jesus. Let me say that again. True greatness doesn't come from making much of yourself. It comes from making much of Jesus. Let's go ahead and read his story together there. Beginning in John 1, we'll we'll pick up in verse 19. 
It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? All right, a little bit of background first. When John steps onto the stage, you need to understand that the people of Israel at this point in history have endured 400 years of silence from God. Now, that's a long time to go without hearing from God, especially for a people who were used to hearing from the Lord. But during this period, this intertestimonial period between the Old Testament's closing in Malachi and the opening pages of the New Testament, this 400-year window, there were no visions or dreams or revelations or prophecies. And one of the things that happened is as the years turned into decades and the decades rolled on into centuries, the hunger and the hearts of the people to hear from God grew and grew and grew until things reached a fevered pitch by the time Jesus came on the scene. Then out of nowhere, this fiery preacher with bugs in his teeth and nappy hair and a roadkill onesie preaching fiery sermons of repentance and the need for baptism bursts onto the scene in the wilderness of all places. There's this great little book. The book is called Prisoner in the Third Cell, and it offers the following colorful glimpse or description of John. I want to read it to you. And I quote, obviously, this nameless man was a Jew, but he wore the garment of an unclean animal, the loathsome camel. And it was soon rumored that for food, he ate locusts, a food used by only the poorest, most impoverished people. His outward appearance declared him a lunatic. His words declared him a prophet. His hair, unkempt, reached almost to his knees. His face was that of an old man, but his voice thundered with the vigor of youth. His eyes flashed the burning fire of the desert. Despite themselves, men could not but stop and stare and listen. The voice rang clear. The words were majestic and bold, almost poetic. There was power in every word. The man himself projected a dignity and integrity almost beyond the grasp of human understanding. The caravan slowed and formed into a circle around the man. Every soul strained to hear what this man had to say. So you had these nomadic, nomadic caravans making their way through the deserts, and they would have been the first ones to encounter John. But what started out as one or two quickly turned into dozens, and then hundreds, and then thousands. And ultimately, entire villages were making their way out to hear John preach. Eventually, word made its way all the way to the top in Jerusalem, and the head religious honchos of the day sent a delegation to find out who this guy was and what he was all about. And of course, there were a lot of opinions floating out there in, in the blogosphere about who John was, and some people were saying that he was the Messiah. It had been so long since they had heard or seen anything like him. And of course, John was quick to shoot those theories down. He said, I'm not the Messiah. Next, they said, 
well, then are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask that? Well, the reason is tied to something that God said to his people in the very last verse of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. So this is how the Old Testament concludes. Let's, Let's read this verse together out loud. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So God promises, before I come back, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. And by the way, this is why Jews at their Passover feast will always leave an empty place setting and an empty chair at the table. They're waiting for Elijah to come back. And John says, no, 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 I'm not Elijah. Although Jesus would later say that John came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. So he was, in fact, the fulfillment of this prophecy. Then thirdly, they ask him, well, are you that prophet? This ties itself all the way back to something that God spoke through the the man, the man of God named Moses. And again, John says, no, I'm not that prophet. Finally, they throw up their hands and they say, well, who are you? What do you say about yourself? And we'll pick up in verse 23. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So John says, I'm a voice. Who are you? Who are you? In many ways, that really is the question of the day, isn't it? I mean, it's as relevant today as it was back then. Hardly a day goes by where we're not asked in some way, shape, or form, who are you? Tell me about yourself. And let me just ask you, how would you respond to that question? What do you wrap your identity around? For most of us, I think the answer is our profession. Tell me, who are you? What do you do? Say, I'm a plumber, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a pastor. And so most of us tend to wrap or define ourselves by our professions. Others of us wrap our identity around our accomplishments, what's in our LinkedIn bios or our resumes. Some people define themselves by their passions, what they're passionate about, maybe their hobbies. For some, it's their looks. For others, it's their kids and what they accomplish or by other family relationships. So there's all these things that we look to to build an identity on and to scrap together an identity. And as we look at John, there's a lot of things that he could have pointed to. I mean, the guy had an impressive resume. Nearly everything about this guy was impressive. In fact, the circumstances surrounding his birth were even miraculous. His parents, a guy by the name of Zechariah, he was a priest, and his wife, whose name was Elizabeth, were thought to be far too old to have children. But one day, Zechariah is serving there in the temple, and an angel meets him and tells him that he's going to have a son. And so she conceived, and there was miraculous circumstances. And then while he's still in the womb, the Bible tells us that John was filled with the Holy Spirit. He could have bragged about that. He was also Jesus' cousin. John's mother, Elizabeth, and Mary were related which meant that Jesus and John were related too. And surely, if you're going to boast about something, you might think you'd bring that up. You could have said, who am I? I'm, I'm not the Messiah, but I am his cousin. 
He could have boasted about his incredible preaching ministry. It drew people from all over the region. Even King Herod himself made his way out to hear John preach, and he liked what he heard. People were so attracted to his sermons that they would come from miles away just to see him. Let's face it, John, by all measures, was a superstar. But instead of doing what so many of us would have done in a circumstance like that, instead of using his position to kind of make much of himself and and his platform to, to build his own brand, John chose instead to talk about Jesus. And with the time we have remaining, what I'd like to do is I'd like to consider the three things that John said about himself that related to Jesus. The first thing that John says in response to their question, who are you? Tell us about yourself, is this. Who am I? I'm a voice. It's an interesting way to describe yourself. I'm a voice. And there are a few things that stand out to me about that statement. First, I think it's interesting that when John's asked to describe himself, he pulls the words of another. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And even in his, his def- description of himself, he, he chooses something that's invisible. He says, I, I, I'm, I'm something that's a voice. A voice can be heard, but it can't be seen. The other noteworthy thing about John's description of himself is this. If you think about a voice and the characteristics of a voice, a voice is only as good as its message. You see, a a voice without a message is just noise. You know, sometimes it feels like the world and everyone in it is competing to be heard, fighting to get their voice heard. Have you noticed that? I mean, we've got all of these different tools, these mechanisms and these means to get heard. But, But let's just call it what it is. There's a difference between saying something and having something to say. And there are a lot of people out there who make a lot of noise, but there's just this din of noise and this cacophony of noise, but there are very few people who are saying something that is worth listening to. In a sea of noise, John had a voice. He had something to say. He had a message. So what was it? He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John was a forerunner, and he was preparing the people for the coming king. He knew that the king of kings was on his way and that the people needed to prepare their hearts to meet him. This is the job of a forerunner. Even today, when the president of the United States is going to to visit a a small town for his public image, in advance of his arrival, they'll send out a team from the White House. And they'll scout everything out, and they'll make sure that the streets are cleaned, and they might organize the security, and they'll maybe even put together a parade and some photo opportunities and things like that. They plan out with painstaking effort every single detail of the trip. Well, things worked the same way in the ancient world. When a king wanted to visit some hamlet of a town in some distant realm of his kingdom, they would send a forerunner. And he would make straight the roads so that the king would have smooth sailing. And then he would prepare the people. They wanted to look their best. They wanted the town to be at its best in tip-top shape. And so the herald would go through the towns and say, the king is coming. The king is coming. And John saw that as his role. He prepared the way for Jesus, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So here's where that intersects with your life. 
You see, I believe just like John, you and I have a commission from God to prepare the people of our day to meet the Lord. You see, John was sent to prepare the people for Jesus' first coming. Our mission is to prepare the world to tell him that he's coming again. He's already come once, but he's coming back. Jesus said, I'll be back. You know, did you know that the references to the second coming outnumber references to the first coming by a factor of eight to one? There are roughly 300 prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming and over 2,000 that speak of his second coming. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament teaches us that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. And when he comes back, he's going to right every wrong. He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And he's going to wipe every tear from every eye. That is the future that all of human history is marching towards. And you and I have this honor or this responsibility, rather to be the heralds and the forerunners who get to proclaim to this world, get your hearts right because the king is coming and he's coming back soon and he's coming with 10,000 times 10,000 of his saints. And we need to be ready. I believe it's a time coming very soon. We all say Maranatha. That's the, the cry of our hearts. You know what Maranatha means? This church is named Maranatha. It means the Lord is coming. And so we have a special anointing, I believe, and a special commission from the Lord to prepare people for the coming king. And John saw that as his commission and calling as well. He said, I am a voice. But there's something else that John would say to us this evening regarding who he was and what he was all about. He would say to us, I am a witness. We see this in verse 19, where John where writes, now this was John's testimony. So John's giving us his testimony in these verses. Jump down to verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And so John gives his testimony. Now jump down to verse 34. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. In fact, if you were to look at the whole chapter, seven different times in this chapter, we read about John either witnessing or testifying about Jesus. In verses 6 through 8, we read about John bearing witness to the light that was Jesus. Later on, we read about him testifying that Jesus was God's chosen one. He's a witness. He testifies. We're familiar with that concept in our culture, right? In a, in a court of law, you have witnesses who take the stand. And in a courtroom setting, the, the job of a witness is clear and it's simple. They're called to testify about what they have seen, what they've heard, what they know, or what they've experienced. Now, you don't put a witness on the stand hoping that they'll just talk about themselves and how great they are and their hair and their life and their job and so on and so forth. No, 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 no. You put a witness on the stand for one reason and one reason only, to testify about what they've seen, experienced, and know. And in the same way, you and I have been called by God, commissioned by God, like John, to be witnesses of what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've experienced. 
Shortly before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gathered his disciples. This is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. This is what Jesus said. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. I like that. He didn't say, you should go witnessing. He said, you shall be witnesses. There's a difference there. You need to pick up on it. You see, and I think it's important because for some of us, this idea of witnessing or testifying about Jesus, it's like a scary and intimidating thought. And you think you're going to walk up to this person and they're going to pepper you with all of these questions. And you're like, oh my gosh, I haven't brushed up on my Greek and Hebrew in a while. And I don't know the difference between eschatology and pneumology and soteriology and theology. And I, I get lost even just thinking about that stuff. And if that's you, let me just alleviate some of those fears. You don't have to really know any of that stuff in order to be an effective witness. You know what you have to do if you want to be an effective witness? Just share your story. It's really one of the most powerful forms of evangelism that there is. The Apostle Paul understood that well, which is why every chance he get, if you read through the book of Acts, he's constantly alluding to and going back to, hey, this is what happened to me. I was on the Damascus road, and I was struck to the ground by this light, and this voice came out of it, and I met Jesus, and that's why I'm a believer, because he changed my life from the inside out. And you say, well, that's great. I, hadn't, I didn't have this experience with a blinding light. I wasn't knocked to the ground. I was seven years old, and in a vacation Bible school, I gave my life to the Lord. That's wonderful. That's actually one of my all-time favorite testimonies. You might think it's vanilla and boring and bland. I find it beautiful, and I'm praying for that testimony for each one of my children. All the parents said, amen. It was a little weak. I'm saying amen to that. There's nothing boring about being delivered from all the pain and heartache of walking through the muck and mire of this world. Your story doesn't have to be dramatic. Just talk about Jesus. Talk about the difference that he's made in your life, how he's changed you from the inside out. That's all that it takes to be an effective witness. After all, how can they argue with you? You are the world's leading expert on you and your life and your experiences. <laughs> That's what makes it so powerful. So just share your story. You can say with John, I'm a voice. I'm just here. I'm nothing. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody named Jesus. I'm just a voice. I'm a witness. I'm here to testify that my life was changed. My heart was changed. He moved into the neighborhood of the cul-de-sac of my heart, and he's rearranged everything, and I'm not the person that I was. I may not be the person that I want to be yet, but I'm becoming more and more like Jesus each and every day. There's one more thing that John says in our text that I'd like for us to examine together. And we find it in verse 29. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
Now jump down to 30, verse 35 because it says this, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. What does John say when he's asked to talk about himself? Who are you? Tell us about yourself. Two times in two days, G John points at Jesus and he says, look at him, look at the Lamb. You know, if you were to summarize the entire ministry of John the Baptist in a single statement, this one might be it. John spent his whole life and his whole ministry trying to get people to look at Jesus. It's interesting that John would describe him the way he did as the Lamb of God. I mean, he had other options. He could have said, look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold the Alpha and the Omega. Behold the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Yet John calls him the Lamb of God. I'm not even to totally sure that he understood all that that implied when it just those words came tumbling out of his mouth. Because in the minds of the people who heard him, they would have immediately associated that picture with a sacrificial Passover lamb. See, John pointed to Jesus and said, no, no, no. The word that the Spirit led him to say was, this is the lamb who's going to be sacrificed to take away our sins. This imagery of the lamb has a, a rich background. In fact, when you go back to the first mention of the word lamb in the Bible, it's in the book of Genesis. It's found in the 22nd chapter. It's a, a very powerful, very moving, very important story about Abraham and his son Isaac. And in this chapter, it begins with God asking Abraham to take his son Isaac to a specific mountain and then sacrifice him to the Lord. Think about that if you're a parent. But Abraham has such a relationship with the Lord that he trusts him so implicitly that he immediately responds in obedience. And for three days, does that number ring any bells of significance? For three days, this father and his beloved son walk to this mountain. And then they see it. And they leave their hired servants behind. And together they walk towards the mountain that the Lord had showed them. And, God's, and then Isaac says to his father in Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8, the fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And then Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb. Where's the lamb? We have the wood, speaks of the cross. We have the fire, the fire of God's judgment. Where is the lamb? God will provide himself, not just provide for us, but provide himself as a lamb for the offering. Then as Abraham takes the blade and he lifts it above his son and he's getting ready to come down with it and sacrifice his son, just then an angel calls to him and stops him and says, there's a ram, a ram caught in the thicket. Not a lamb, but a ram who had been caught by its horns. And so they take that and they sacrifice it. And so the question hung in the air, where is the lamb? That's what Isaac asked. The answer came some 2,000 years later when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking along the, 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 the edge of the, the river, Jordan, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the first mention of the word lamb in the New Testament. Jesus is the Lamb 
Look at the lamb. Behold the lamb. Fix your eyes on him, the author of Hebrews would say, the perfecter of our faith. You know, there's a small church in a German village. The name of the village is Eisenheim. And there in this small little church, there's a painting of John the Baptist. It was done by this famous Renaissance master whose name is Grunewald. Maybe you've heard of him. And the painting sits on three panels above the altar. And it's a scene of the crucifixion. And Christ is there hanging upon the cross in the center panel. And he's surrounded by various onlookers kneeling in worship. But the most arresting figure in the painting is John the Baptist. He stands at the edge of a side panel with arm outstretched and one long bony finger pointing to the cross. That picture defines John's role and in many ways sums up his entire ministry. For that matter, it perfectly illustrates the calling of every follower of Jesus Christ. Who are we? We are fingers pointing at the lamb. Behold the lamb. Make much of the lamb. It's all about the lamb. And when we get to heaven in Revelation chapters 4, 5, and 6, we get this painting of the heavenly scene as John himself gets caught up and he writes for us what he beholds in heaven. And there he sees a lamb as though it has been slain from before the foundations of the world. We're going to see the lamb with our own eyes. As we close this evening, there's a postscript, postscript to this story that I'd like to touch on because perhaps you're thinking, well, that's all good and fine, and John made much of Jesus, but don't we need to assert ourselves? And I mean, is chasing greatness such a bad thing after all? And so I'd like to, to end our time by talking about true greatness de defined. You see, John spent his whole life, his whole ministry, Touting the greatness of Jesus, pointing at Jesus. But you know what happened in the end? After he did that, Jesus returned the favor. And he touted John's greatness. You see, there was this gathering of people around Jesus, and they were talking. And Jesus gathered his disciples, and he said to them on that day, and this is Matthew 11, verse 11, he said, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. <laughs> That's some high praise coming from the lips of none other than our Lord Jesus. Then Jesus goes on to say this, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's break that apart. First, he says, among those born of women, <laughs> I don't know that there is anyone here who wasn't born of a woman. If that's you, would you? OK. So that pretty much covers all of us, right? Jesus is saying, John is the greatest person to have ever been born. Now, the lie that we often believe is this, that we need to self-promote, that we need to, we need to push ourselves and get our, ourselves out there and climb the ladder in order to be seen and in order that we can make an impact. And it's interesting because the Bible never tells us not to seek greatness. It says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, then here's how you do that. It's a different strategy. But God doesn't condemn this desire to be great. But if you want to be great in God's kingdom, then you need to learn how to humble yourself and be the servant of all. And that's the path that John illustrates for us. You see, the truth is, when you spend your time making much of God, it opens the door for him to turn around and make much of you. 
Now, you can do some certain things of your own accord and with your own grit and with your own gifts and assets and resources and talents, but think of how much more God can do. I'd rather have him talking about me than me trying to talk up myself. You know, the Bible says it like this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and then he will lift you up in due time. So according to Jesus, John was, in fact, the greatest man to ever be born. But he goes on to say this, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How does that work? Here's how. John was the last of a dying breed. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, as it were. And even everything about him just kind of screamed Old Testament. He, he was like a man born out of due time in that regard. He died on the other side of the cross. He baptized, he said, with water. But it was preparatory for Jesus. When Jesus baptized, he baptizes with the spirit and with fire. That's what we get to experience, not just the baptism of repentance like John. You see, John was a voice. But Jesus is the living and the eternal word. And that word gets planted in our hearts. John was the forerunner. He introduced Jesus. But Jesus is the king of kings. And he lives in us. And so let's make much of him. Will you pray with me this evening? Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. As we've been able to spend some moments considering the life of this man named John, a humble hero. And Father, I just pray that you would make us more like him. We live in a world where everyone is screaming for attention, scratching and clawing and fighting their way into the spotlight. Lord, I pray that like John, we would be content to take the lens of that light and move it away from us and point it on you. So that when men see our good deeds, they would glorify our Father who's in heaven. Father God, we need you. We need your spirit. We need the baptism of the spirit. We need to be empowered to be voices, Lord. Give us a message. We have been commissioned. We've been sent out by you to go into this world. And there's so much noise, and there's so many voices, Lord. But we have a message that needs to be heard, that Jesus is coming back. Lord, embolden us so that we would share our testimony simply, fearlessly, courageously. We don't have to have it all figured out, but we would just be content to say, I'm a witness. I'm here to testify. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of salvation unto everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Help us to proclaim your word. And help us to keep our eyes fixed on the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Lord, we get so consumed with ourselves, and we look in the mirror, but we need to not look at ourselves or look around, but to look at you, Jesus. Fix our eyes on you. So I pray that you would help us to do that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. 
Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.